how many patients with stage four prostate cancer who were given three weeks to live a year later have ongoing remission. Within two months, Paul Mann, based on ivermectin alone, um, his PSA went from something in the 700s, 800s to one. Doesn't dinner sound great as it's cooking? This dinner is from Riverbend Ranch, which always provides prime or high choice, has never been given hormones, never been given antibiotics, never been given mRNA vaccines. It's raised in the USA. It's processed in the USA. In fact, it's fully vertically integrated, which means that they own the cow that gives birth to the calf. It's raised on their fields and then taken to their butcher and then shipped to you. And if we compare what we can buy from Riverbend Ranch to four other major state companies that sell bundles that have ribeyes and other meat in it, it can be as much as $184 to $59 less expensive. It's a great price value and it's a delicious piece of meat. Check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. That's mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. Mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. If you've noticed, I've been wearing this t-shirt for a few episodes now. I have them available on eBay. Check out the links below to get your size. Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff. On this podcast, you will be encouraged to question everything. And to have the courage to stand for the truth. And now, to your host, Dr. Sigaloff. Well, thank you for joining me again. I want to first thank all my Patreon subscribers. We've got Too Tough at the $30 level. We've got the anonymous family donor at $20.20 a month. We have the Plandemic Reprimando at $17.76 with Ty, Charles, Tinfoil, Stanley, Dr. Anna, uh, Frank, Brian, Shell, Brantley, Gary, and Sharon. The $10 level with Kevin and Pat and Bev. The Refined Not Burned at $5 a month with Linda, Emmy, Joe, PJ, Rebecca, Marcus, Elizabeth, Don, Ken, Rick, Mary, and Amanda. Addison Mulder is giving $3 a month, and Frank is giving $1.50 a month. We have The Courage is Contagious with Jay, Spessnasty, Darrell, Susan, BB King, and Caleb. Thank you so much for, for helping me in my endeavors. Also, please be sure and check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours for some of the best beef that I've ever had. Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, I have Dr. Kathleen Ruddy. She is a surgeon and she used to work on breast cancer. Uh, she used to do breast cancer surgery. And, and Dr. Ruddy, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. I first heard you talk at the FLCCC conference and you have a new and unique and probably a better way to um, treat cancer. Can you introduce yourself and kind of explain where you came from and, and where you are now in your thought on cancer treatment? Right. So thank you for having me. Um, I spent my career as a breast cancer surgeon and thought I was coming to the end of it uh, when COVID broke out. Um, 
and saw obviously I couldn't leave the profession at that point. Uh, I began prescribing ivermectin for patients with COVID because my reading of the emerging information coming from South Africa and from India was that ivermectin was effective and safe in preventing and treating COVID. And then, of course, I began to follow the great work of Drs. Merrick and Corey. That got me interested in ivermectin. Um, it's not something that surgeons generally get themselves involved with parasites in ivermectin. We do maybe a couple of antibiotics and then call in the experts, right? Um, so I was surprised to learn that there was 20 years of research showing in preclinical data, that is prior to human data. So in the laboratory, in human cancer cell lines, and in animal models that ivermectin and other repurposed medications showed great promise. As a matter of fact, um, invariably, every scientific paper I read, these were peer-reviewed um, while, you know, during the time where peer review meant something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, invariably, the, the authors of the paper would conclude that the results were so compelling that there really should be clinical studies to evaluate the efficacy of these drugs in humans. Every paper, one after another, said the same thing. Of course, because ivermectin is 10 cents a pill, it's been off patent for decades. Um, it was absolutely impossible to think that ivermectin would be repurposed as a cancer medication or any of the others, actually, mebendazole being another one. Um, well, I had the opportunity to um, provide some guidance for uh, three patients with a very advanced and or aggressive cancer about a, a year ago. and. Um, they decided, based on their own reading of the, the information on the internet, that they wanted to use ivermectin. The first one was a, a man who you may have met out in Phoenix, Paul Mann, um, who had stage four prostate cancer. And he had two Pfizer vaccines. Two months after his second shot, he was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. He was 53 years old, no family history. Um, a marathoner, very fit. Um, the second patient uh, was a man in his late 60s who was diagnosed with unresectable, that is the surgeons would not dare to try to remove it. It's too hazardous. So it was unresectable esophageal carcinoma. Actually, there were two lesions in his esophagus. And uh, his doctor said, you know, the only thing we can do is chemo and radiation. He said, well, <laughs> that's nice. Goodbye. And the third woman had um, a huge 18 centimeter tumor in her pelvis that originated from the lining of her stomach. And all three of those patients had astonishing results with ivermectin. So uh, Eddie, who's the guy with the two esophageal tumors who had no treatment whatsoever, nothing. You couldn't possibly argue that it might've been something else that helped. Now, all he did was take ivermectin and his tumors went away within six weeks, two months, completely gone. Wow. Um, yeah, the woman who had the 18 centimeter tumor that was resected, um, a, a pretty uh, remarkable feat of the surgical oncologists and the other teams, 
uh, they resected that gigantic thing with negative margins, but she had uh, metastasis in her liver. And uh, postoperatively, she had a pretty uneventful postoperative course and uh, decided she was going to take ivermectin and the metastasis in her liver cleared up entirely. Uh, Paul Mann, who you met, um, who was given three weeks to live and, you know, like hospice, call the priest, whatever, um, started ivermectin, slowly, slowly, slowly um, began to respond and get better. Uh, and as you know, he's out dancing in four hours, three nights a week now. Um, his tumor is not uh, completely uh, regressed. Um, so he's considering other interventions, other repurposed medications and so forth. So after I had seen these three, one, two, three, I was like, there's something, something going on here that looks important. Um, knowing that the pharmaceutical industry was never going to you know, move on this, and if pharma is not going to move, no one is going to move, right? By and large. So the academic institutions and the, the philanthropies, no one's going to drop a dime on ivermectin. Uh, and so I began to think that it was important for somebody to do something, right? I mean, if these medications are as effective as they appear to be in the laboratory, and as they appear to be in three patients, so three patients is not 7 billion people, but three patients in a row um, is a lot considering their response. Um, I thought to myself, what am I going to do? And I had to give myself time to think hard about what would be a strategic, acceptable, ethical, uh, scientifically sound um, approach to answering the question. Does ivermectin and other repurposed medications improve the survival of patients with cancer? And I came upon a, the idea for an observation study, such as the one that was done at Framingham, Massachusetts, where investigators just went in and asked a bunch of questions. You know, every two years they showed up with a gigantic questionnaire and they uh, asked, I think, 52,000 people in Framingham, Massachusetts, you know, what are you eating? What are you drinking? What are you doing? How do you live in? And it was over a period of decades that the Framingham study was able to uh, illustrate and illuminate um, correlations and then causation that were heretofore unknown, such as an increased risk of breast cancer in women who were taking hormone replacement therapy. That came out of the Framingham study. So, among others. Uh, so, I thought, okay, an observational study where all I'm doing is recording the data. I have a questionnaire. I'm recording the data. Um, and so I launched it uh, privately, um, you know, word of mouth. I don't have a website. It wasn't doing social media. It was all very, you know, um, just grassroots in a quiet way. Um, and I was getting patients who were desperate. They have the turbo cancer. Um, they, they were giving up, or more commonly, the doctors were giving up on them because there was nothing else they could do. And the patients were like, you know what? I'm not dead yet. I'm not interested in dying. Don't tell me you don't have anything else to do. Let me see if there is something else to do. Well, Paul Merrick, Dr. Merrick, found out about the study uh, through the you know, Grapevine Network. And uh, he called me and we talked about it. And um, we agreed that the next best step would be to enlarge 
the study, have multiple principal investigators, all doing their own thing, as it were, except that we would be coordinated. First of all, we would be working under the leadership of Drs. Merrick and Corey at the FLCCC, which is a marvelous opportunity for everyone. Um, we agreed on a data collection set. So, you know, Framingham was the same questions, you know, pretty much year in and year out. Except if there were new questions that had been derived from prior data. Um, so we agreed uh, on what the data set should look like. Uh, and we're all very happy with it. Uh, and now um, we're in the process of um, arranging for a institutional review board. I have my own ethics review board. The point is that you have a panel of independent professionals um, peppered in part by people who are um, somewhat familiar with the world at large, but not necessarily experts in the field of, of cancer, parasitology, infectious disease. So for instance, on my ethics review board, I have retired uh, principal of an elementary school, very capable, very capable woman. So the FLCCC is putting together um, their own institutional review board. And the job of the institutional review board, this independent panel, is to ensure the proper conduct and conduct of the investigation. Um, the other thing that FLCCC has done is to um, retain a world-class biostatistician. So I and the other principal investigators will be contributing our data to FLCCC, who will then be sharing that data with a biostatistician. She will be the one who crunches the numbers. So I will not be saying, you know, my study did this, we showed that, blah, blah, blah. It's all going to be turned over to an independent biostatistician of the highest caliber, who will then tell me and tell us what did she see in the data. So at this point, I'm recruiting patients to my study, as I say, there are six principal investigators. Everybody's doing it a little bit differently, but that's okay because we've agreed to the data set and we've agreed to have leadership of FLCCC. Um, my particular study um, is a two-part process. The first process step is to begin with an initial consultation, and that allows me to um, become acquainted with the patient and familiarize myself with the medical record, the history of the cancer, the kind of cancer, the treatment, the patient's overall health, the patient's preferences. How about that? <laughs> patient gets to decide all along the way what they want. And then my part of the job is to offer guidance and information that the patient needs um, to help them make the decisions that are right for them with regard to repurposed medications. It doesn't mean that they cannot follow um, the physicians in their own established network. They don't have to choose between conventional and repurposed. Um, I'm neutral. I'm here to provide information and to collect information. Um, the second step after the initial consultation, which also allows the patient to um, become acquainted with me and how I work and my body of knowledge. And they can judge on their own whether that's valuable to them. Did they learn a lot? Um, do they now know 
uh, do they have a roadmap? Um, so at the end of the initial consultation, if they decide after further thought that they want to enroll in the study, then that's another step. And the study for my part is a two year study that involves ongoing consultations as needed. Patients um, who are doing well don't need consultations as frequently. Patients who are, are sick need a lot of attention and they get it. So that's it in a nutshell. Now, what state are you in? And if people want to become part of your, your observational study, how do they join that? Is there a way to join that? Yes. Uh, well, um, because this is uh, guidance, not I'm not providing medical advice. I'm not prescribing med- medications. If patients do not have a physician or a pharmacist who can prescribe or dispense, I can put them in touch with reliable colleagues who will be able to prescribe the medications and dispense in every state in the country. So these are um, basically telephone consultations after the review of the medical record. So patients all over the country, actually around the world now, are calling me and we're doing these initial consultations. so the best way to get in touch with me is to send an email to Kathleen T, as in Thomas, Ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y, M-D, at protonmail.com. Um, you send me an email, tell me you're interested, whatever. I'll get in touch with you, and we'll take it from there. That sounds wonderful. Hopefully with this uh, episode, some people will be willing to, to reach out to you and find out how they can uh, try some new and not really new, but some alternative methods that may work better than the traditional theory for treatment of cancer. Well, that's the question. I mean, the question is a simple question. Do patients with cancer who take these repurposed medications have an improved survival compared to patients who in the historical record, have not taken these medications. So we have historical data. We can go back. I mean, the National Cancer Institute, the uh, American Cancer Society, there's, there's a wealth of historical data about how many patients with stage four prostate cancer who were given three weeks to live a year later have ongoing remission. Within two months, Paul Mann, based on ivermectin alone, um, his PSA went from something in the 700s, 800s to one. Wow. And another patient recently, 90 years old, um, and he is what we call a cardiac cripple. He has a lot of cardiac issues, and eight years ago he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, because he wasn't a surgical candidate, he had radiation therapy. Recently, his PSA started to climb again, slowly but surely, which is an indication that the prostate cancer has come back and it's starting to spit out this protein PSA. Um, So he called me and um, he said, you know, I don't know what, they're not going to, they can't do any more surgery. I'm not taking chemo. I'm 90, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, if you're interested in ivermectin, I can put you in touch with someone who to provide that for you. Within a month, this PSA went from, what was it, 18 to 1. Wow. In a month. Yeah. That's yeah. just absolutely incredible. Yeah. So it remains a question. I'm, I'm not planting the flag on these repurposed medications as being better than or even effective. You know, anecdotal information 
are stories with points to them, you know. And the point of the first three stories I told you is that we need to, to look into this. And so, and so we are. We are going to look into it, and we're going to do this um, in such a way that we will not be vulnerable to criticism with regard to the design of the study or the conduct of the study. Um, and we'll have a biostatistician who will crunch the numbers and and we'll see what's what. So, yeah, we're going to do it the right way. I think it's incredible. Yeah, I think it's incredible that, that, first of all, your mind is open enough to to see this because, you know, it's, it, you know, you hear these anecdotal stories and for the layperson, it may be like, wow, why isn't everybody using this? But then when you look at it from the scientific mind, the medicine mind, you're like, well, that's an anecdote. We need more evidence. But so often in medicine these days, it's hard to believe any actual evidence that's out there because so much of it, if you go into a study with a certain frame of mind, you can pull that, what you're looking for, you can pull that out. You can manipulate the numbers to get what you want out. But when you actually go into um, asking the question honestly and openly, that's the only time you get the real answer. And so much of wow. medicine, as I'm sure you are aware of, is is so slanted one direction away from asking honest questions. Well, to be fair, some of the clinical studies that are have been done in the past, and in fact are being done now, are very restrictive because the question that they're asking is very narrow, and it applies only to a small group of patients. Um, that said, there is no doubt that the pharmaceutical industry is avaricious and homicidal, genocidal. They don't care. And I know this from personal experience, having dealt with the executives at Johnson & Johnson at the highest levels in the executive suite over 30 years ago. And it was then that I had my rude awakening, they absolutely made a decision to let people die or be harmed rather than change a surgical device so that it was safer. It was easier to settle lawsuits. It was easier to write a check and say to someone who had been injured, don't tell anybody here's $10 million or whatever than to retool their surgical instruments and admit that their prior instruments were unsafe, had caused deaths. So I saw that. And, and when the story was we're going to have vaccines to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection, I knew that was a lie. I knew that. I knew that from prior experience. You couldn't make a vaccine against a coronavirus. Um, and so now everyone knows what I learned the hard way, what many of us learned the hard way. You cannot trust the pharmaceutical industry. They must be dismissed in terms of discussions about how to proceed. Certainly in this case, and in most cases now, they have um, they've fallen on their own sword, <laughs> not by design, uh, but they they were out there killing us and maiming us uh, with no regard for the dignity of human life, for the suffering that they inflicted, and no regard today, no regrets whatsoever. And so 
okay, that's the battlefield, fine. We're going to push forward with this. It's really important. Patients who have cancer, particularly the turbo cancers, those related to the uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, but more importantly, those related to uh, the vaccine, um, they're suffering in a way that is unimaginable. Um, COVID came and went. Not that COVID was not a catastrophe, but COVID came and went. And COVID is not an issue. Now, long COVID is post-vaccine injury, big problem. Cancer is here to stay. It's been with us for too many years now, despite racing around in circles for a cure that doesn't exist, at least based on most of the mainstream treatments. Not all, but most. Um, so we're just going to move out in a different direction. Um, and pharma can get out of the way. Please get out of the way because we're coming through. If you could, can you explain a little bit what uh, Dr. Paul Merrick said at FLCCC with the two theories of cancer and how mm -hmm. one theory won over the other theory and how the, the one that lost originally may be the more correct yeah. one? Well, you know, that reminds me of physics. <laughs> and so um, physics evolves. Okay. I don't know if you know anything about physics, but physics evolves. Okay. So um, first, we really didn't think very much about physics. Uh, probably the Persians did because they're really smart. Um, and then Sir Isaac Newton came along and he thought hard. Anecdotal information. Apples always fall from the tree. And everybody knew that. Everybody could see that. Nobody thought why. But Isaac Newton was like, why are the apple? Why does everything fall? And then he looked up at the sky and he was looking at the stars and the planets. He goes, maybe they're falling too. Maybe everything is falling. Well, he was right. Everything is falling. Uh, he wasn't able to describe that using words. So he created the calculus to be able to describe it mathematically. Um, and that was, that was it. You know, that was uh, Newtonian physics for many years, you know, centuries. That was replaced. Um, in the 1900s with a new view, um, Einsteinian view and Schrodinger and so on and so forth. This is true with medicine. So at first we knew nothing about what caused cancer, although there were those who thought that cancer might perhaps be an infectious disease. That was in the late 1800s. Um, then when Mendel, um, was able to show that there were genetic inheritance patterns in the peas he was growing in his garden, you know, in the abbey. Um, and he published the laws of inheritance. The question was, well, what's carrying these inheritance? We'll, we'll call those genes. Genes carry blue eyes or brown eyes. Well, not too long thereafter, about 30 years thereafter, um, Clarence Cook Little and others at Harvard were like, we're going to find the genes that cause cancer. How about that? Okay. We're going to find the genes that cause everything. And that has been the mother load since. Find the genes. So we found the BRCA1 and 2 genes that predispose to breast cancer. But if you carry a BRCA1 gene, okay, 1% of Ashkenazi Jews carry this gene, you have an 85% lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. Well, what about the other 15% of people? 
They have the same gene. They, they don't get breast cancer. Why? What's up with that? Okay. So the genes are not, you know, the be all and end all of the disease. Other things are involved. Tumor viruses are certainly involved. In my view, this is my view, write it in pencil, don't write it in pen. <laughs> my view is that all cancers are caused by tumor viruses. We just haven't figured out what's what. So I think if I recall correctly, what Paul was talking about, Dr. Merrick was talking about was the most recent iteration of the cause of cancer is being genetic. And yes, indeed, we have found the Philadelphia chromosome with uh, certain forms of leukemia, right? Um, as it turns out, uh, it, it's as if I mean, we're chasing um, genes all over the map now and hoping that there will be a clue. They've not been as satisfying as we hoped they would be, the whole genomic and genetic mutation pursuit. They haven't been fruitless. I'm not saying that. It's just that we're not going to find what we're looking for just by looking at the genes or even looking at epigenetics, that is, the switches that control genes. We're going to have to look at other things. Um, and there's some very interesting other things to look at. Um, several decades ago, um, the thought was put forth that the origin of cancer occurs in the mitochondria, not in the nucleus. So the nucleus is where the, the genes are. Problem's not necessarily in the nucleus. The problem is in the mitochondria, which is your, your power cell, right? It's the industrial plant making the energy. Um, and oh, by the way, half of the DNA in your body inside the nucleus comes from your father and half comes from your mother, right? But most of the DNA in your body resides in the mitochondria, most of it, way more DNA in the mitochondria. And all of that comes from your mother. Okay, Mother's Day, right? So if you disrupt uh, the mechanisms in the powerhouse of the cell, you can do so by manipulating the DNA in the mitochondria. Um, and some thought has been given that that's, the, that's where it is. It's in the mitochondria. I hold to the following hypothesis uh, generated by Dr. John Bittner, who discovered the breast cancer virus in 1936. And he proposed, and I agree with him, and others have agreed as well. It's not just Dr. Bittner, God rest his soul, myself. Plenty of others, plenty of other people, including those at the NIH and the National Cancer Institute. Um, I think it's distinctly possible, and we know that this actually happens, tumor viruses get inside the cell and they can get around. They can get into the mitochondria and they can alter the mitochondria so that the mitochondria no longer supplies energy to the body economy, as it were, or the, the total economy of that particular cell, they can get into the DNA and they can play around with the DNA and, you know, trigger oncogenes and, and do insertions and all kinds of crazy stuff. I actually think it's a constellation. Dr. Bittner said there are three things that you need to form cancer. So it's a simple equation back to algebra. Okay. We all remember algebra, 10th grade, right? Ninth grade. So you have a genetic predisposition, getting back to the BRCA patients. Not everyone gets a cancer, but you have the exact same mutation. So you have a genetic predisposition, yes. You have a tumor virus, yes. No tumor virus, no cancer. P.S. We're swimming in a sea of tumor viruses that are everywhere. Epstein-Barr and herpes and 
this one and that one. So you won't have a problem bumping into a tumor virus. Your immune system is there to defend you against them. But don't worry um, if you think you're going to escape a tumor virus. Yeah, think again. Uh, and the, the third factor, which is the big long list, are other factors. So, so men who have BRCA mutation tend not to get breast cancer, although most men who get breast cancer have a BRCA mutation. But what you need to get breast cancer is something that drives the mutation, and that's estrogen. And men don't make estrogen, at least not men that we understand, men as we understood them. <laughs> Up until about two years ago, when all of that got scrambled. That, that's um, okay. Here you can clearly say that men don't make as much yeah, estrogen as women. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, right. And there's a reason, because they're men. Right? Right. I did have a patient once who ate a lot of soy, and he believed, because uh -huh. he was, I believe he was BRC negative, but he believed uh -huh. it was the soy intake that helped contribute to his breast cancer. Well, that's just the possibility, because there are pathways to do that. But anyway, this long list of other factors. So you start with a genetic predisposition. You get a tumor virus involved. Very easy to do. And uh, then you have these other factors, smoking, drinking, age. As you get older, your immune system starts to wither away. Um, environmental, BPA, uh, 5G, you know, chemtrails. Pick your favorite, you know, carcinogen. There's a long list. And then you, you, you know, you pile one on top of another, and it's a wonder that not everybody has cancer. But then, I guess now, we have the mother of all other factors, and that's the mRNA vaccine spike protein, which was designed as a bioweapon, works very well as a bioweapon. Thanks, guys. You get an A on that science project, <laughs> and you're killing us because it causes cancer. And it absolutely causes an increased proliferation of the cancers that exist. That's the turbo cancer that we're seeing now. So we're in a world of hurt. Um, so I think to answer your question, Dr. Merrick was talking about the old school, you know, we're going to find the genes and, you know, most everyone is doing that still. Okay. But that's how science is. Everybody's always doing the old stuff and they don't want to do the new stuff. Um, and now we've got uh, the metabolic cause, you know, mitochondria, metabolic cause. Yep, that's hot. Um, and there's something to it. I'm not saying that the mitochondria is not altered. I know exactly how it is altered. Uh, I understand that. I don't think that that is going to be where we find, aha, the Rosetta Stone for understanding cancer. I think what we need to do, I think we need to understand, and this may be the next phase if I can nudge the crowd in this direction. Pay attention. Let's go back to 100 years of research on tumor viruses. And let's pay attention. Let's begin to understand what tumor viruses do to the DNA. What do tumor viruses do to the mitochondria? And once the normal cell becomes a clone of the virus, right? a kind of biologic clone. Viruses only want to replicate. That's it. It's a short agenda, okay? They come in to destroy. They're the mother of all parasites. All they want to do is multiply, divide, and they'll do everything that they can to do that. And that's what cancers do. That's exactly what cancers do. So I think that's where we're headed. That's, I hope, 
where I can contribute some attention while I'm drawing some light to the question of these repurposed medications. What other repurposed medications are you seeing uh, beneficial? We, we mentioned the um, ivermectin and the mabendazole. And in the FLCC conference, you talked about how mabendazole can cross the blood-brain barrier. But what are some other medications that you found? There's a long list. And Dr. Merrick, by the way, wrote the best monograph on this. Cancer Care wrote it last year. An astonishing accomplishment. Everyone should read it. You need to read it. Anyway. Um, so sildenafil, uh, metformin, aspirin, new information, relatively new, doxycycline, vitamin C in combination with doxycycline is particularly powerful in nailing cancer stem cells. Cancer stem cells are the real bad boys in the action here. Chemotherapy and radiation therapy do not eradicate cancer stem cells. As a matter of fact, when you try and kill tumor cells, they send out like an SOS. Like, we're dying, save our ship, you know? Uh, and the cancer stem cells are activated by this. So the cancer stem cells are immune to the impact of chemotherapy and radiation therapy, by and large. And they grow, which is why patients will have a good response. Oh, the chemotherapy is working. Radiation therapy, oh, the tumor got smaller. And then all of a sudden it comes back. It comes back because of the cancer stem cells. And this combination of doxycycline, I mean, talk about a cheap antibiotic. <laughs> I think it's a penny up hill, you know, um, plus vitamin C. And you don't have to do intravenous vitamin C. You can just, you know, like oral doses of vitamin C. I know the absorption is not the greatest. You don't need the greatest. Doxycycline, vitamin C in these preclinical studies uh, get over 90% of the cancer stem cells. And then there was another paper doxycycline, azithromycin, the ZPAC, remember Dr. Selenko and his ZPAC, um, and vitamin C. Highly, highly, highly effective. In that combination, the cancer stem cells were wiped out. So perhaps where we need to be going with this is to think, how can we stop the growth of the tumor without encouraging it to regrow? How can we stop the growth of the tumor without hurting the patient? How about that? Um, how can we smoke out the stem cells and kill them? Because at the end of the day, you have to kill the cancer or the cancer will kill you. Very simple. Patients, in my experience, want to live as long as possible. I mean, we're all gonna die. And then if you're Catholic, and you're baptized, you're going to heaven. <laughs> Maybe the Protestants too. <laughs> That's a bit of a joke. <laughs> um, anybody who believes will let you in. Okay. Um, so we're going to die. We want to live as long as possible. We want to be healthy. We don't want to be suffering. I get it. I get it. But mostly, when you're talking to a cancer patient, they want the cancer to go away. They do not necessarily want to live longer with cancer. They want to live longer without cancer. Thank you very much. They do not want their cancer to be described as a chronic disease. We don't need another chronic disease, okay? We have enough. We need to get rid of the ones we have, okay? Not, not increase the list. It's like the national debt. Forget the next chronic disease. Get rid of the cancer. Kill the cancer or the cancer will kill you. Comes down to that, in my view. 
I think that's perfect. I think that's amazing. And I think this is a great place to start wrapping up. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I'm sorry for having such a short episode, but we are limited on time today. Um, yeah. Dr. Ruddy, this is this has been amazing, eye-opening, and I hope that there's some small way that I can help contribute to your your research. If you need to use me as a resource, I'd be happy to um, to see patients in the area. And I'll get to and I'll let you know where I am when where when this is over. Yeah, I appreciate that. What I would like to suggest is that your viewers and yourself please contribute to the FLCCC. I don't get any money from them. I don't get a dime, uh, and, and I'm not going to. I'm working very independently, but they need help. Please have your viewers contribute if you want to make a difference. If you want to move the needle. At last, let's really move the needle here, grassroots effort, then please donate to FLCCC. Have your viewers do that. Um, and you've already shown up for your part of the job because you're doing the podcast. So you're doing what you can do, which is share the information. So thank you very much for that. Yes, ma'am. And if, you, if you're looking for a place to donate, FLCC link will be listed down below in the show notes. So please, if you find it in your heart to to give to this organization, uh, I suggest you do. This has been a great organization. They've come up with many different protocols to help with uh, vaccine injury, long COVID, um, can't, uh, COVID therapy, how to treat people with COVID. And it's been very beneficial for me clinically even. Thank you, Dr. Reddy. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. God bless you. Thank you very much. You too. Bye now. Just a reminder for everyone out there, a duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. Doesn't dinner sound great as it's cooking? This dinner is from Riverbend Ranch, which always provides prime or high choice, has never been given hormones, never been given antibiotics, never been given mRNA vaccines. It's raised in the USA. It's processed in the USA. In fact, it's fully vertically integrated, which means that they own the cow that gives birth to the calf. It's raised on their fields and then taken to their butcher and then shipped to you. And if we compare what we can buy from Riverbend Ranch to four other major state companies that sell bundles that have ribeyes and other meat in it, it can be as much as $184 to $59 less expensive. It's a great price value, and it's a delicious piece of meat. Check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. That's mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. Mycleanbeef.com slash after hours.